to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with Conan Neutron and Josh Davis. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It's a scientific fact. We are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only... Protonic reversal. And welcome to it. All right, so today we have a treat for y'all. Mr. Mark Dutrum of uh, Clown Alley, Bell Ringer, and from the Atlantic era, the Atlantic era... Of a little band called the Melvins, you may have heard of if you're a fan of this show. One might imagine. You don't get hear a lot from Mark Dutrum. He's a very busy guy. He's got a lot going on, and looking forward to talking with him. He's had a long and storied career, and he's got a lot of good music to share with the world. And really interested in talking to him about it. So we're gonna be doing that relatively shortly. Uh, let's see. Checking up, of course. Uh, get, getting lots of good feedback from the Gaz Tropical Fuckstorm episode. Uh, if you haven't already listened to it, it's still available, as are all the episodes, RadioNeutron.com. Going to be playing with those guys Saturday in uh, my personal timeline, so that's exciting. Um, let's see. Anything else? I don't think so. I think we're just going to get right to it here. I'm feeling this more and more. But before we do that, we're going to listen to... So here's how you should grok this music. Is This is a this is from a release called Bellringer slash Jettison. Right? Under the name Mark Dutram. He originally released it as Bellringer, as like a separate band, basically. And this is uh, the first song on here. It's called The God of Roosters Does Not Forget. Uh, let's listen to it, and then we'll come back with Mark.
All right, and let's hear another one real quick. This is going to be Temple Smasher. Okay, so that was Temple Smasher off of Brief Sensuality and Western Violence by Mr. Mark Dutram. And before that, of course, we played something off of the off the Bell Ringer record, which was a uh, first song on there. Uh, the God of Roosters does not forget. And with us now, we have none other than Mr. Mark Dutram. Mark, hello, welcome. Good evening. 
Thanks so much for uh, for being on the show, man. This is this is great. It's been it's been really interesting diving into the catalog. It's varied and deep uh, genre wise. It is it isn't necessarily you know one strict genre. Even though I think I picked two of the most raucous and rowdy like rockers uh, of, of some of the bunch of them. Like I, I like it. It's like it's jazzy sometimes. There's some more like exploratory like psychedelic sort of pieces as well. It's eclectic. <laughs> I hate to front load this also with explaining the whole bell ringer thing. But it's not the band isn't called Bell Ringer anymore. You're basically releasing under your own name, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's just sort of. I, I probably, honestly, would be a lot further along if I'd been using my own name my whole my whole life, maybe. But um, yeah, it just originally I had an idea of. Well, everybody has an idea of having a band, and you know, in the band are your three best friends. Right. And, right. Yeah. Uh, you spend a lifetime together. It's like a weird three-way marriage, and you get along, and it's great until you don't get along or whatever. But um, my idea behind Bell Ringer was because because so many um, bands have kind of revolving doors, and it's just usually out of necessity more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, there's like personal conflicts and girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I just. Uh, my idea was to have kind of more of a collective <clears throat> rather than have, uh, you know, steady band members. And then strangely, I've ended up playing with, uh, well, Aaron, who plays on Brief Sensuality and plays on Bell Ringer and plays on the Bluebird also. Uh, well, I've been playing with him, I didn't realize, 10 years now. Oh, wow. And then my player, Brian, I've been playing on and off with for about... Four years, so it's ended up being kind of a steady unit anyway, regardless of the other people who've come and gone. So, um, you know, we just had a conversation about trying to break this bell ringer thing, and they pointed out to me that this is effectively a new band, and that uh, we probably would get more traction if we just went under my name. So right. uh, that seemed totally logical to me, and of course... It was a relief to my record label and <laughs> a variety of other people who don't right. want to spend. Oh, I can market that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't want to, you know, spend twenty minutes explaining to somebody why I can't make up my mind about what I want to do. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. So, Bellwinger is. Um, you're hearing it here for the first time. Will be discontinued slowly because there's a fair amount of followers over that way for me. Anyway, so everything will just go back towards the Mark Dutram pages online or whatever, and there'll be the world will neither sigh a breath of relief or possibly even notice. Well, and and of course, there's, you know, there's famous and there's sort of like, you know, for lack of a better term, indie rock famous. And it's not like you have an unknown name by any stretch of the imagination to people into a certain kind of music. So it, you know, does make sense. And especially... Since you have, you know, a, a pretty good like clearinghouse of, of music, having having it all just under your name is in these nuanceless times we live in. As much as I think Bellbringer is a hell of a band name, frankly, it's probably, honestly, probably for the best. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's a there's a fair amount of irony in there. I mean, the person that came up with the name was uh, the very first Bellbringer drummer, and then he probably quit. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I had a, um, son was just in town and I was hanging out with Greg Anderson and he oh, and sure, I had yeah. a little, 
a little talk about uh, the name Bell Ringer, and he goes, well, you know, to be honest, when I put Bell Ringer into a search engine, I get a certain something that you might not want to be associated oh, with. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so, so listeners, please do not. Do not put that into a search engine. Just we can we can trust on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can put it. You can put in Bellringer ATX, and then possibly you'll, uh, you know, end up with something to do with me, and possibly you'll end up doing some, you know, exploratory journeys into your own sexuality. I don't really. <laughs> it know. might end up somewhere different. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a way to make both of it work for me. I just haven't figured it out. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So how do, so how do you reconcile uh, personally the stuff on, I guess the record was called Jettison, right? It was by Bill Ringer and the record yeah. was called Jettison. Uh, that okay. material along with, you know, some of the earlier ones, like the... Uh, the, which I love the title, The Brief Sensuality and Western Violence is such a great title. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, obviously, the fact that, you know, same guy making the music, uh, you know, as, as the core, uh, is there a through line through it for all of you? Do you kind of look at each of these releases as having its own voice or trying to achieve some kind of purpose? I don't know. That's a tricky question. Does any release have any purpose at well, this point? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good point. But, uh, good point. <laughs> I, I, appreciate, I appreciate your sentiment for the uh, nostalgia value of the physical item that used to contain music. Um, yeah, being a thing that people click on and then the thing happens, right? I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we do still value the album here at Protonic Reversal, so uh, please, please indulge yeah. me, if you will. Yeah, well, they, um, you know, they all have kind of their own little space, and um, right, right, that's, that's what I'm getting. At. Their, yeah, yeah, they all, they all kind of have their own. Uh, I'm not trying to continue or discontinue any particular trends within my own writing. It just, um, it, it's fairly spontaneous and intuitive as to what gets included. Um, you know, back when I was thinking, oh well, I'll have Bell Ringer, and then, and then. Um, you know, I'll have my own records, and my own records will be perhaps more exploratory, and Bell Ringer will be more stripped down. But, I mean, I'm writing everything, so I write, um, you know, a super wide variety of material, and that's not, um, you know, it's just it's just what comes out of my brain. It's because I like a little, I like a lot of different kinds of music, and to me it's interesting to explore different types of genre and just literally see if I can conquer them to my own satisfaction is more what it is. And then of course, challenging the people I play with, uh, to see if they can, if they're interested in coming along and, um, and, uh, helping me do that also. So I haven't really, uh, the, the people who, who, who basically said, I don't like that and I'm not going to play it. They're not. I don't play with them anymore. <laughs> you know, and it's, <laughs> right, and it's right. not, you know, it's not that I'm demanding, you know, okay, we're going to do Stockhausen cover versions and we're going to do, hey, everybody, here's a you know, recreation, <laughs> yeah. yeah, recreation of some Miles Davis live seventies thing. You know, I mean, we're, the stuff here is like, okay, it's a three piece. Let's try and play something that sounds like it's from BB King's first record or something. So yeah. the, the bar is relatively um, low for what I'm trying to do, but, uh, you know, 
it just it's usually I just start corralling materials uh, together, and then the ones that are hanging together literally do that. The other ones just get put aside for later on. So I mean, within probably a, th- a space of three or four albums, there's material that could have ended up on either one of those records, you know, that just didn't make it there in the end. Likewise, there's four or five songs that didn't make it onto uh, the Bluebird record, which came out in January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. those could have, and those could have quite easily ended up on a a future Bellwinger record or probably a future Mark Dutron record. Cause I mean, there's, there's tracks that are literally completely mixed and completely finished that just in the end, they didn't belong on the bluebird, but they'll come out later someplace else. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's kind of what I was driving at is that do you, is there any sort of overarching vision towards like, Oh, that, you know, here's here's the sorting hat, if you will, that that goes here, that goes there, or is it more, I guess, freewheeling? Maybe that's that's a, that has like, maybe that's the wrong word to use because it makes it seem uh, like there's less intent behind it. But it, it, is it something where, because it, it, it sounds like, as far as the music itself, it's sort of like whatever you, whatever's floating your boat at the time is kind of where you're going. Um, I mean, do you feel like that's like daunting for people that? You know, like they, <laughs> like they're maybe like they just know you as like, hey, it was that guy that was in that band, and uh, I'm gonna get this record, and then like, oh, this is different than I expected. Uh, is that something that, that is a concern? Are you just kind of trying to build a world where the unexpected well, is expected? <laughs> well, it's a, it's certainly it's certainly an issue for my record label and for my band members. <laughs> Um, you know, they haven't managed to get together and have a, have a, have a good chew about it between themselves. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been accused of diversity for its own sake, but, um, you know, I think, and I mentioned, I mentioned this actually in some other interviews that I did, I use, I use chocolate as an analogy for metal. And then, you know, you can have chocolate, all different kinds of chocolate, all different uh, ingredients put into the chocolate, chocolate with nuts, chocolate with fruit, dark chocolate, the darkest chocolate, the heaviest, most evil chocolate. You know, so that was like analogies for metal, but literally I do think of music as a kind of a cafeteria, you know, and I, I don't, um, you know, I probably should go, uh, I, I can write, uh, I can write cool riffs in this one specific way, so I should just write a million of them and not care, you know. <laughs> right. But, um, so, which definitely some bands, some bands have built a career on, you know. It's, it's definitely well, I mean, it's, not an unknown thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't fault that. I mean, it's, it's like donuts, you know. If you can, you just need to make one amazing donut or hot dog and you're done, you know. So, um, it's, it's kind of like that, but really, I'm, uh, it, it really comes back to challenging myself, trying to keep things interesting for myself. And music is so vast. I mean, it's not just, you know, guys with stacks and, and you know, black T-shirts. I mean, it's it's a <laughs> right. huge thing. And, and I mean, I, there's so much of it. It's like literature that I'm not ever going to get to really know as much as I want to know in my lifetime. I just don't have enough time, you know. Um, but, um, so to me, that's where the, 
the joy in it is is trying to discover new things, trying to master new things, and trying to uh, operate within genres that that might not be entirely comfortable to me, and to try and do it uh, respectfully and properly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and you you've you certainly you know built it built a discography where that is you know something that looks like a statement of intent i mean just as a for instance i know back in um you know go back in the wayback machine uh, there was that uh, cd i think it was even like just like a limited edition cdr or something but uh it was just different iterations of uh the word iraq uh <laughs> by bush i think <laughs> right and then uh and you just yeah. kind of soundscape scout is really interesting because for me anyway i've always been obsessed with the idea of like a word being repeated enough times, it just loses all meaning whatsoever and <laughs> stops being a word sure. necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, you can, I mean, that's, that's more of a vestige of my, of my, uh, academic career, which was brief, but highly impressionable. Um, when I went to Cal arts and I got to study composition there. And, um, so, Theoretical concepts and, and serial techniques and all that kind of stuff was really in full bloom at that time, and it was kind of alienating because they were kind of, you know, saying, let's remove the, the emotional content from this, and then we can really get somewhere, you know? Right. And, um, of course, it was just a phase that was going on in academia at the time. But um, Iraq is very much kind of a sort of commentary on that type of stuff where basically, well, let's just get a couple of ingredients and do some math and then let the machine run. Actually, there was a bunch of editing involved with that, but um, it certainly comes from that sort of ethos of kind of overthinking something to the point of ridiculousness and, right. uh, you know, but, but when you do that, it becomes something else and it's kind of interesting because like twelve tone music, um, you know, a bunch of people have used twelve tone oh, sure. yeah, techniques yeah. to generate music. But you know, when you hear Schoenberg, you know right away that it's a Schoenberg road. You know, so it's very sort of interesting in that way. It's like people playing uh, the blues on guitar or something. You know, you have a certain number of ingredients, a right? distinctive identity based upon maybe like a preconceived ingredients list, uh, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, or, I mean, it's really the subconscious at work, you know, because right. in music, I mean, the subconscious is really the great kind of guiding figure that you have, and um, I think a lot of times it's it's the difference between, you know, truly great stuff and just sort of mediocre stuff, you know, the people that can manage to not get in the way of their subconscious are the ones who are uh, generating the really... The stuff that you can't put your finger on, you don't know why that's resonating with you, you know. Interesting. So, sort of liminal, kind of liminal spaces. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? So, so do you feel that you're better at sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, getting out of your own way and letting your subconscious do its thing now than you used to be? Is that something that you've kind of? Yeah, well, about? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I figured since I've tried for so long being very conscious of what I'm doing, maybe I could get more success by being completely unconscious, you know? So, um, you know, I think that uh, 
there's validity in that, but um, I think the key is to just keep trying different things, and I do very much operate more on an intuitive level musically now than I used to, which is a good thing. So take it back, and I know that it got reissued uh, a year ago, maybe two years ago, but the, the record you did, The Silent Treatment, T- take me back to that. Where where was your headspace when that record was written versus uh, <clears throat> more current stuff? Oh, wow. Well, that was um, uh, 1998 when I actually recorded it. I was still in the Melvins at the time. And, um, uh, yeah, I just had a whole bunch of material that I wanted to... I've never stopped writing material and wrote stuff for the Melvins also. And um, um, had just been um, acquiring, building up material over years. Um, and... Uh, Silent Treatment was mainly all that material, and then, um, you know, they decided they didn't want me in the band anymore while I was recording the record. So, um, yeah, that happened, and uh, that kind of changed <laughs> yeah, not much my, you can say there, yeah. <laughs> that kind of changed my headspace, but, you know, I was in a working environment. I, I mean, I had to get the whole thing done in basically two weeks. I had a week to track it and a week to mix it. And I was in Los Angeles. I was living in London at the time. And um, there was a lot. Luckily, that happened basically when I was, I think I'd started mixing the record. But um, I don't really want to dwell on that too much. I mean, my headspace was really good making the record. Right. By the time I got done with it and was able to start reflecting, I really didn't like much of what I was reflecting on. Um, and then I actually had a really, it was two years before I could put the record out because nobody wanted to put the record out. Oh, interesting. Okay. So what was, huh. And that was, that was kind of an interesting period for music in general too, because it was sort of right on. (laughs) It was 1998. Yeah. Yeah. So it was before the MP3 really changed everything, but it was kind of right on the cusp for that. And certainly the music industry was in a much different state of affairs than it had been even, you know, uh, five, 10 years earlier. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's no streaming or anything at that time. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you still basically had to go out chasing like some kind of a little indie deal or something like that. And, and I think another thing that just kind of led to a sort of, uh, um, just utter disinterest in what I was doing was I think by the end, of the 1990s, uh, we'd kind of hit peak alternative whatever, you know. So I think a lot of, uh, I mean, I talked to all kinds of people. I talked to people with big labels and little labels, and and they were just like, nah, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. And then, of course, you know, 10 or 15 years later, you know, I run across people, and they're like, why didn't you call me? (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, because I have this French label now who actually loves it and thinks it's amazing. And That's a know, Season of Mist, of right? Just thing. to give, give them a shout-out. Season of Mist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was a very strange to, to kind of, um, you know, to, to finish making the record that I'd worked super hard on and then all of a sudden have completely different life life situation in front of me because I basically had to go home and then look for a job 
which is what I do, what right. I did. And then also, um, you know, have nobody interested in what I just made was pretty um, sobering and not very fun. And then also my, my uh, first first marriage was falling apart, too. So <laughs> oh I had, like, this kind of... <laughs> I mean, I have this kind of three-way, three-way, yeah, I'm not at any, I feel nothing now, so it's fine. <laughs> that's awful. I, I mean, that's, wow. And, yeah. and it's interesting yeah. to think about uh, times being different now versus then, too, where there's this sort of melding of art and artist for like a social media presence or whatever that, you know, none of that stuff was around them. Like, as far as I knew, it was like, one thing I really knew from you was like, Oh, that's the fellow with the cowboy hat. You know, literally that's all I knew. Oh, he, he played the, and, 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 you know, I listened to the, that record when it came out and I was like, Oh, which apparently was two years after you recorded it. And I was like, Oh, cool. It's good. And I, <laughs> you know, I didn't really think too much about it one way or the other. Cause I didn't know, I didn't have any context to anything. And it's hard to yeah, describe well. to folks these days that, you know, you can't just fire up the old Instagram and see what's going on or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the digital natives just have no clue of what it was, you know, the sort of fractured nature of things in the past. But I think it was, um, you know, and I'm going to sound really old here, but, but uh, you know, I think there was a, I think there was a, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, sort of magic in not knowing about stuff and literally... Right having to find out about things and having to search for stuff. I mean, obviously you can go on band camp and knock yourself out for like a month and a half, you know, just listening to nothing but new bands, probably in North Carolina alone, yeah. you know, <laughs> just fall down the so, rabbit hole. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the saturation point has become, you know, just this kind of, the saturation point is really kind of like a tipping point. And, um, it's, there's just so many people out there doing it um, that, uh, you know, social media is really driving uh, promoters and, and um, you know, booking agents to try to do things a specific way yeah. as a reflection of social media. And, of course, because it's artificial, a lot of times it doesn't actually reflect reality. So... You know, there's been all of this kind of jumping on board, all this digital stuff, the digital realm. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of thought about what the effects are going to be of that, you know. And it's in, it's in all the arts, too, you know. I mean, uh, movie companies are finding out right now what it's like to basically be Napster or something, you know. Right, exactly. Past, yeah, yeah. You know. So they want to. They want to control. Everybody wants to control all their own content now, and the thing is just going to fragment even more. You know, but that's just what it should do. And then people are just going to have to pick up the pieces and see what's left. But uh, yeah, it seems like everybody you know, wants having, their own specific streaming service now, and that like everything is going to be a walled garden. But instead of there being like, yeah. oh, you go to this place to get the thing, it's no, there's. 40 yeah. different things and you know maybe well it's, not, it's already like that and I mean it's a reflection of the way it was in the past if you wanted to buy uh, you know an Aretha Franklin record in the 60s you had to go buy it on a record that came from Atlantic Records you know right. so I mean that's it's just a newer 
weirder model of the path thing, and then you're not even owning it now. You're just basically paying a lot of microscopic licensing fees for your subscription fee, you know, per month. But, um, you know, it's just, it's not very sustainable for people like me. I mean, all that stuff doesn't really matter. We're still just kind of hustling on the bottom end of it. I mean, if you're, if you're Neil Young or, or like Trent Reznor, you can basically start your own streaming service yeah, for your you own yeah. <laughs> uh, catalog, and you're done. You know, if you're a legacy oh, artist, no. I mean, you're laughing. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and the idea being that the whole point of the democratization of the internet was supposed to remove gatekeepers, and what really is happening is that there's just different styles and types of gatekeepers now. Uh, and well, it's just it's just monetizing everything under the sun yep. and the main part of it is to grab the sweet data that they can sell on to other people you yeah. know because the data the metadata itself is a commodity and probably you know the some of these individual data is actually worth more than the you know two beach boys songs or billy ellish songs they're listening to you know yeah so that's <laughs> another layer of irony you know. Well, and there's that there's that old saying that if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product, right? <laughs> very, yeah, well, of course, yeah. very true. <laughs> <laughs> so, take me back. Uh, you know, you mentioned going to CalArts, but and I actually had forgotten uh, because everything's down the memory hole right now that you were born in the UK, right? Are, do you still mm-hmm. are, are you do you still hold British citizenship, or you uh, do you have US citizenship at this point? Like, um, do they just like give it to you eventually? <laughs> Are you kidding? You, you looked at any kind of news? In the yeah, last, I was gonna say. Uh, as I was saying that, I was like, "Wow, that's a dumb thing to say." But you know, it's never stopped me. No, before, it's good. So. It's funny. Yeah, no, um, no, I'm not a, I'm not a U.S. citizen, um, and it's just basically because I would have to. And I'm not saying I want any special treatment or anything, but it's it's been convenient for me to retain my UK citizenship and have a green card, which I've done for yeah. decades and decades and decades. But if I was going to go and, uh, you know, try to do a citizenship course or whatever, I'd have to go do it like everybody else and yeah, get a sponsor and all that kind of stuff. So, you know... Um, well, the UK is more the inclination today. The UK is in kind of you know as far as things being chaotic. UK is not in that much better of a place right now than than the US in a lot of ways, at least at the time of this recording. Yeah, well, I mean, they're you know now that they've uh, dissolved Parliament, I guess it's time for a Cromwell figure to, to appear. <laughs> right, exactly, it's all kinds of You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Definitely, a, a friend of mine described the current situation as, uh, you know, like what happened on certain television shows during the writers' strike uh, some years back, where it's got the, these, like, suddenly all these shows are on the air, all these puzzling things that made very little sense started happening. Everything is drunk dad logic, and uh, I think that's fairly astute. Yeah, the UK is they've uh, well, they're getting to learn now, also, you know. Yeah, That's not so high and mighty now, huh? Yeah, exactly. We're going to be learning from, learning from their two favorite countries, Scotland and Ireland. Yep. So we'll see how that pans out. You know? <laughs> but so you grew up there. You grew up in the uh, in the UK. I mean, were you around for, you know, like the tail end of like uh, like Beatles and, and, you know, the sort of 
there was a couple kind of eras of music like punk rock as defined by the UK, things along those lines. Did you? Did you? Yeah. Play? Well, um, well, I did. I mean, I was I was I was born there, and I lived like the first six or seven years of my life there. So um, I have really vivid memories of um, watching the Beatles on TV as a kid, and nice. seeing uh, you know Kennedy's funeral and just weird stuff like that. But I was I was a music fan from when I was pretty little, and I do remember badgering my mother to buy, um, you know, the little Beatles EPs that had four songs on them, and, um, um, what else? Did you start playing yeah. on then, too, or did, did that come No, I didn't, I didn't start, I didn't start playing until I was probably about nine, and, uh, my parents got divorced, and so my my stepdad was in the military, so we started moving to a variety of military locations in Europe and the U.S. And uh, he played guitar a little bit and showed me how to start playing some some stuff when I was about 10, really simple kind of one-line stuff. Um, and then we lived in uh, Germany when I was a little older. We lived there for three years, and they had a Armed Forces radio network there for the you know, for the guys who are stationed there. And so the Armed Forces Radio Network was great through the mid to late 60s, you know, the three years that I lived there. And they just played all this great stuff. It was probably better than stations in the U.S. Yeah, because they sure. basically had a DJ who was playing all his favorite stuff. Like whatever he wanted. It wasn't necessarily what yeah. was being pushed by the record company. It was just Yeah, so it was great because you'd, you'd hear this total mishmash of uh, you know, Bird Backrack and um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears and The Stones and The Who and James Brown. You hear it all mixed in there. So that was a really great uh, tremor as a kid because I knew if I just sat there and turned it on, I'd hear really cool stuff, you know. Yeah, of course. Right away, pretty much. So um, that was highly influential to me. And then I discovered Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that when I was a little bit older, and that was kind of it, you know. So. That set you, set you on your way. So, what brought you? Oh, you said Cal Arts. You you um, you uh, did you go to Cal Arts uh, immediately? Did you have a like a stopover elsewhere in the U.S. first? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I. I um, Spent like my high about half my high school years and grade school years out in West Texas in El Paso, oh. Oh, and man. Um, <laughs> so I got to see a lot of really you know this is in the early mid seventies time so um, there were great bands touring all over the place so I saw lots of great shows out there and uh, that was very formative and and uh, impressive also to me um, so. Um, I went to went to Cal Arts after high school. That's a college. So, um, and that was that's how I got there. And I, study music. Yeah, yeah, and basically, I mean, from just becoming like a giant music fan as a teenager, I started listening to more progressive stuff like um, King Crimson and Yes and Emerson, like Palmer sure, and Genesis yeah. and. Uh, all that kind of stuff, and and uh, from reading interviews with those guys, they were talking about classical music, and they talk about Stravinsky and Bartok and more modern stuff. 
And so my listening kind of stretched out to include Miles Davis and obviously Orchestra and all, you know, that whole mild school of of modern fusion-esque type stuff. And that made me get really super interested in, in orchestral music and classical music and learned how to write music. And then that's basically applied to go to Cal Arts, and that's how I ended up here. So, and were you sort of, were you still clued into what was happening currently at that time? Or were you just kind of going down like the composer rabbit hole and uh, really uh, soaking all that up first as far as like whatever was going on, um, you know, in, in El Paso at the time, like the like bigger bands, like local <laughs> bands, uh, I would assume punk rock bands, you know, uh, big rock. Yeah, well, this is, this ZZ is top, even probably. kind of the- <laughs> Before punk rock a little bit, but I mean, there's nothing going on in El Paso. I mean, it's yeah, just like now, there's yeah. nothing going on in it. You know, I mean, the only time anybody <laughs> talks about it is when something terrible happens there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so, if you, you know, I mean, like they'll go great Texas cities. I mean, I'm in Austin, and El Paso won't even be on there. You know, ever. Pretty much. People forget it's even in Texas to, to a certain degree, unless you know it's like you know touring bands or, or people that are specifically going there for a reason because it's so yeah. far removed. I think a lot of people don't also understand just how big Texas is and how much how much West yeah. Texas there is as well. There's so much of it. Yeah, and I mean El Paso, El Paso is big. I mean it's bigger than San Antonio, you know, yeah. by a lot. And then combined with that, it's, I mean there's two and a half million people in the area, so it's yeah. not exactly. Small. It's not a small, but the location I think definitely makes it, you know, have a different from an outsider anyway. It seems like it has a different cultural identity, almost maybe closer to like parts of New Mexico, really, than uh, you know, the, the certain parts of, of other parts of Texas. But again, those coming from an outsider, maybe that's based on nothing. Yeah, well, it's more like Chihuahua than anything. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. sure, yeah. Well, that well, makes sense. It's more like more like old Mexico, you know, which yeah, I mean yeah. it was. So, you know, the whole area was. Yeah, story checks out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, so, so I just went out to, but, but to answer your question, I did, um, when I started going to Cal Arts was like in 77, and that's in Los Angeles. So I spent a bunch of time going to clubs down in L.A. and saw all those great bands that came up at that time, you know. Like um, germs and stuff like that, like things. Everybody, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. Nice. I saw, I, I saw everybody. I used to go to the, the whiskey and the Starwood, and I used to go to the even the Mask, and I would go to um, Hong Kong Cafe and Madame Wong's, all those places. Go to those big shows down in uh, what was it, Huntington Beach, and places like that. So I saw pretty much everybody, um, and uh, you know, got to know people in the scene a little bit, and lived in LA from, uh, I guess, '77 till '82 or something. And uh, that's actually where I met Lori Black, who who became a uh, uh, bass player for a few records in the Melvins too. And her and I were a couple, and we lived in LA till '82, and we moved up to San Francisco. So we would go and see all the. We were very much. Uh, liking and enjoying the the alt scene that was going on in LA at the time. Nice, and I, I imagine that had to be you know somewhat inspiring as well. Was that I mean, were you playing? Oh, sure. at, playing yourself yeah. at the t- at the time. Like, did you have a band together, or was that still? I mean, Clown Alley, I think, was uh, a little later, right? Eighty eighty six. Yeah, like 
Yes, that's right, 86. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, nonstop trying and trying to put bands together and make stuff happen and just stuff not staying together and not happening. You know, like, right. like 99% of bands, you know. <laughs> Which so, is, yeah, yeah, it's not a story that's uh, that's that uncommon, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, no, it's highly common, yeah. And, okay, so then the... When you did get Clown Alley going, which by the way, Clown Alley, that's um, that's where like the is isn't that in the circus like where the clowns change, like where they get ready to do the show? Is, is that what a Clown Alley is? Um, I always kind of thought that it was some sort of place where they put the delinquent clowns, like oh. the clowns that got a little <laughs> a little out of line. It's like they got put in Clown Alley till they simmered down or something, you know, nice. kind of like. Uh, you know, kind of like a penalty box in a hockey game or something. You know? Putting you in the clown alley, Mikowski. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's all fun and games until okay, that's enough. Now you need to go to clown alley and <laughs> think about what you've done. You know, I don't know. <laughs> and so that's when you guys got started. You were in San Francisco at that point, uh, right? That was. Uh, am I? I, I seem yeah. to recall this is a little before my time, so. Uh, Apologies if I get some of the, the facts wrong. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and the original version had three girls and me. We had a, um, a drummer called Becky, and she was actually in some, some famous girl punk rock band from New York or something. I forget what the name of them was. Oh, nice. And then there was a lead singer called Maxine, and then Lori played bass and I played guitar. And we did all the... We play on those little maximum rock and roll shows and put our own shows on and stuff. And you know, but that wasn't the band that ended up making the record. That was two other guys that we got later. So. An, an earlier that was an earlier version, and then the the version that's on the record was uh, there've been some lineup shifts since then. Whereas uh, what yeah. you, you and Lori and just me and Lori and then a new yeah new singer. His name was Dave Duran. He was in a band called Jerry's Kids in New Mexico. And then this other guy, this drummer called Justin Clayton. And um, it's kind of weird. I actually got a message from Dave Duran via Facebook yeah. about two weeks ago. And I haven't heard from him in God knows how long, 35 years or something like that. Facebook is pretty good for time. that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, I didn't get on it until a couple of years ago, so I've missed everybody my entire life going, you're on Facebook, that's amazing. It's like, now nobody cares. Right. So, <laughs> so it's kind of good that I waited. The only reason I got on it is, is because my label asked me for my Facebook page, and I said, I don't have one, and they just... I can almost hear the phone drop. You know, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Are you writing manifestos in the woods currently? <laughs> yeah, I actually asked my PR guy how to invite people to my Facebook page, and it was just about, you know, falling on the floor from that. It was kind of funny. That's interesting. And it's funny, it's funny too, because uh, as far as, like, Facebook goes, it's – utility as a medium for connecting with fans is you know somewhat somewhat overrated if you're not willing to pay but you know it, it, it has its moments well, yeah. don't get me wrong yeah <laughs> no no i mean i understand i understand how it works and i mean if i if i wanted to start shoveling money at them i could watch my you know followers or whatever go i mean i know how the thing i know how the thing works yeah. i know people talk and they're just the things just throttled until you 
unleash the credit card, and then all of a sudden it's kind of miraculous. You know, so. yeah, oh, suddenly, oh, suddenly everyone's seeing everything. Yeah. Oh, it's weird how that works. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know it's for grandma. You know, basically. Right, right, right. So, uh, so getting you know, getting back to the Clown Alley stuff, uh, you know, from from my from my ears, it sort of operated in the same category as like uh, I don't know, like Dead Kennedys and um, Black Flag, but like maybe a little like more grindier, um, you know, th- things. Yeah, more, more, more sort of proggy, I think. Yeah, a little probably. more. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned King Crimson because that's actually like oh, it's like a little, a little like punk rock King Crimson, you know. Uh, but definitely yeah, kind, of, kind of angular a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and I think well, I think that was before. Was that before Stupid Bathtub came to San Francisco? They might have still been in Denver at that point. I can't remember. But anyway, the, the, yeah, like a lot of a lot of bands around that time. There was a certain, you know, there were there was it was definitely from for me as a fan, it was, it was noticing that oh, people are bringing in like different influences to punk rock and like weirding it out now. Uh, rather than just being like, hey, everybody, hardcore, check it out. It does this, and that's the one thing that it does. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I think it's more just like a, like a maybe more of like a British influence, kind of like Gang of Four type yeah. stuff, or Killing Joke, that type of thing, a little bit. You know, mixed with a sort of metal, dulcet metal tones of the Bay Area. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, Which are <laughs> the dulcet metal tones, indeed. Uh, so, so the and around that time that the record, uh, the Clown Alley record comes out, which uh, it, that's about the same time that Laurie ends up joining the Melvins, right? That's because uh, no, that's later actually. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so the the timeline is kind of you know I had the label probably between maybe late eighty five and eighty eight. And so, um, yeah, I mean, basically, 88 is the point where where uh, my ex-partner in the label went insane, and then the label split up, and then basically, also, what happened was um, uh, Buzz decided he wanted to move down to San Francisco. Oh, right, because they, they were in Seattle still at the time. They were, they were in Seattle, Seattle, and they came down to do that first record, and then they went back up there, and then... Uh, Buzz and Lori got into a relationship and he decided he wanted to move down so then I decided to leave San Francisco. So Lori basically, I think I think the first thing that she did with the band was actually Ozma. Um, and so that's like, I think that's maybe even that's 89 a, or Yeah, 90. Yeah, because Glue Report Treatments is before that. And you actually did some production on that one. Too right, a lot of people don't. Yeah, I put aware of this, uh, especially for like what's you know widely considered a very formative record for for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, Ozma. Yeah. So eighty seven, and then yeah, Ozma is eighty nine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, because I moved to the UK, and so I came back to do Ozma for him. Um, so you know, we obviously stayed on good enough terms to still be able to work together through that. So. Um, yeah, and then um, after that, I guess I guess Lori did uh, uh, Bullhead and Eggnog. I didn't work on those, and then um, you know all that stuff happened with the with the Melvins or whatever they went to, wherever they went to, and um, they ended up. Buzz ended up calling me up, asking me if I wanted to join in like 
either late 92 or early 93. I can't remember exactly. Well, and it's interesting because that's a very, I mean, that's a very formative time uh, for, for a lot of people, but it's also a kind of big time for that band because I th- uh, Houdini was the Houdini was the first one, right? Or was the Stoner Witch was the, the one before? I can't remember which one was which. Yeah, Houdini. And that's the first one on Atlantic, which a lot of people uh, to this day, you know, when they think of the Melvins, they think of that, that trio of Atlantic records, the uh, Houdini, Stoner Witch, um, Stag uh, run yeah. run of records. So when you came in on on the Houdini side, was it more like, hey, these songs are mostly done and we want you to do the thing? Uh, was it Was it more like... Hey, let's do some stuff. Like, what what was the what was the engagement level when you when you first came in on that? Um, well, I mean, it was pr- I mean, it was basically the highest engagement level possible, right? Because I had already done everything that you could basically do with the band, you know. Yeah, um, you already I, knew them. You already had a relationship with them from working with them previously, yeah. too. So yeah, so and I'd already done a bunch of touring with them as a front of house guy so i so we knew what it was like to travel together also which is a it's very it's very important thing. yes yeah and um so yeah i mean they were you know those is basically do you want to you know we need somebody we can rely on and they had all this touring books because they uh houdini was done when i got asked to basically as far as i knew it was kind of Initially, as a touring bass player, they had all this, all this, had this big tour with Primus booked, and uh, they didn't have anybody to be on it. So they were kind of between a rock and a hard place to an extent. They had a, you know, they were just starting an album cycle, and they were down members. So yeah, not a good place um, to be. Yeah, so I mean, they, you know, they called me up, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a think about it or whatever," because I was still. You were living in the UK uh, still at the time, right? I mean, that's... I was, I was living in the UK, but it was really more like a personal thing, okay. you know, because of the stuff that went on between... Sure. Between us, and yeah. I wasn't sure if I was just... I wasn't sure if I had it in me to just walk back and go, okay, this is, you know, today's today, let's get to work, you know. So, um, you know, I managed to find my way through that, to be able to make it work, you know, until it didn't work, I guess. <laughs> right, and and you're predominantly a guitar player. Of course, you uh, largely played bass, but there's guitar stuff. I mean, there's, I think, especially for Sona Witch, there's a, a good example of, like, there's musical counterpoints. Um, you know, it's not just it's not just the, you know, D, 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 D <laughs> style of bass playing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I always used, you know, whatever whatever the material was, I always used it as a point of departure, you know, so it was kind of, okay, here's the, here's the way the riff goes, here, here's how the chord goes, here's the chords that we're using. Um, I always tried to make it sound bigger than it did and to try to always bring something, because a lot of times when you just double something, I mean, you actually make it smaller sounding. Right, right. Yeah, where it yeah. doesn't it doesn't actually provide a bigness. It actually sort of <laughs> smallifies it to a certain degree by uh, by just you know, being too busy or or uh, or whatnot. 
interesting. Okay, so yeah. so and then I know that uh, you know uh, there's having seen you guys around that time. You know, there was a song. Uh, what was it Junebug? Right? I think is that the the speed yeah. one that you uh, you guys would switch. You'd play guitar and Buzz would play bass on that one. Yeah, well, we did we did a couple of tours. I think we did a European tour where we played three sets, right? To well, we played. I think in, I'm not sure if we did the three set thing in Europe, but I know for sure we did a two set thing where we played pretty close to two hour long sets. And then in the I think we did that first in Europe, and then in the U.S. we did three sets, and I played guitar for the first one. Uh, and then the second one was kind of lighter material, and then the third one was kind of, you know, all the money shots. You know? <laughs> right, the, the hits, only the hits. <laughs> yeah, the hits, yeah. <laughs> hits in quotation marks. But I, I remember because I saw, you know, whatever the one was in uh, in San Francisco, and I thought it was such a genius idea because at that point it's like, well, there's enough material and there's enough different kinds of material to do that. But it was like, I was like, oh, what an audacious move. What a, <laughs> what a crazy thing to try. But it... It actually made a whole lot more sense when when you saw it, especially based upon how everything was sort of like collected together, and, and the types of songs that, that were there. So I mean, I think it worked. Yeah, well, I think it did. It's also, there's also probably a, a more banal reason for playing three sets, which is not taking a band on tour with you. So, <laughs> Less money uh, to go around to do. Yeah, it's like, sorry, there's no room for you on this one, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but you'd be surprised. I mean, promoters would still be, you know, well, we got these two local bands who can't wait to play, you know. Yeah. We're just going, Jesus, you know. But. <laughs> so, so that's a Stoner Witch, uh, and that's. I, I want to get. We, we kind of brushed right past it. Was there any special story be, be behind Junebugs? I think it's a really, it's a really cool song, and I've always kind of wondered if there's anything interesting, like with that being like, was it always meant to be an instrumental? Was it just something that kind of popped together and off you go? Well, yeah, probably always was meant to be an instrumental, and I think it's one of those. I think it's a track that was being considered for silent treatment. And, uh, you know, like I was kind of, well, should I do this? You know, should I throw this at the band or not? And I was like, oh, I'll throw it at the band. That's fine. And there was a lot of that, you know, like, oh, this is cool. This isn't cool. Or whatever, whatever the process is. I mean, it seemed to be a fairly organic uh, process of selecting material and bringing it together. And, um, you know, we were, you know, coming up with new material was certainly not any kind of a hardship for us. I mean, if we, uh, you know, I mean, not not that it's a good example, but uh, the record Prick, Prick. was done, <laughs> right. um, you know, just because we had leftover time from doing demos in the studio. So we probably spent two days making that whole thing, you know. And, uh, you know, so there was definitely a, accelerated um, aspect of creativity. And since we lived in different places, um, we had to kind of really uh, try to extract the most amount out of our time together, which we did pretty well, I think. Well, and is it interesting from, again, from the perspective of a fan, like Sooner Witch has had especially some serious staying power. Like that's, that's a record that it seems like new people discover every year. 
I mean, is that something that, you know, how does it, how does it feel in like 2019 to have like, are, are people still referencing that to you? Uh, you know, is that something that you, you're living with when it's, you know, you're talking about God, that's 94, right? So sometime back, yeah. it's a, but it's a fantastic um, record. Fantastic. Weird as hell record. I love it. Yeah, it is a it is a good record, and I mean it's a it's very much a collaborative uh, effort, and you know that record is amazing also because of uh, um, uh, Garth Richardson and uh, oh right yeah of Joe, course, yeah and Joe Barisi and also um, Chad Bamford. You know those guys are just uh, monster technicians and have great ears. Yeah, Joe Barisi did. Uh, what did he, he did? Uh, there was, he did some record recently that I really, really dug. Um, nah, totally stupid cool. at this point. <laughs> oh, he did do two. <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, I was thinking of uh, ah, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, he's got it. That's a guy that's you know he's got a quite the quite the uh, engineering discography. Uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, consequently, he has no life, but, you know, that's his choice. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Actually, uh, on a on a uh, side note here, I was actually trying to get Joe to uh, mix my record, The Bluebird, and I've been talking oh, really? to him for like a year and a half. And um, he's basically just... A pencil yeah, for twenty twenty six. Something like basically that. just uh, basically just tied up with Tool, you know. Now we had a window organized and everything, yeah. and uh, he was basically, you know, he, I mean, he couldn't tell me who it was, but I sort of figured it out. And then, um, you know, we had the time figured out and everything, and then he was like, "No, nah, can't do it." So, throw him under the bus for Tool, whatever, <sighs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but so, so but around that time, Sonar, uh, uh, which which again holds up well as a record, people kind of discover one of those records people kind of discover every year. Uh, but there was the tour. There was a bunch of touring. There was you know you did you went out with Primus. You went out with uh, with that was uh, around the time you went out with Kiss. Uh, if I, if yeah, I'm up right. Which crazy. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, we actually made up a story about. I don't think Kiss had gone out with the makeup on in a while or something. I mean, you know, we would get kind of silly in, in interviews sometimes when we made up a story about how Kiss was going to put their makeup back on and take us out on tour with them. <laughs> and uh, that's what happened. And it actually happened, yeah. So, the, <laughs> yes. so Were you a fan? I mean, I, I imagine. Uh, I'm not personally a fan. Oh, really? Uh, okay, all right. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, Buzzendale loved it. And, I mean, they're all super nice people. I mean, you know, I'm just not... I, I went more as a, at a at an impressionable point in my teenage years. I went more towards Queen um, than I did Kiss, you know, as far as, like, big show bands are concerned. Gotcha. And um Used to get in like big, big dumb teenage fights with people over who was better. You know, so, <laughs> but I mean, you can decide. You know, never quite in. They just it, get uh, they just get paused and picked back up later. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but the guy that I used to have the biggest fights with was actually the drummer on the Silent Treatment, who is an old uh, high school and grade school friend of mine who has become a really great drummer. But. Um, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. And he was in the Kiss right. camp there? and that. Yes, so, uh, yeah. 
So, yeah, that's okay. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> but I mean, it's still, <laughs> even, even if you, they weren't your favorite band or anything, it's like, those are crazy no, shows. I mean, that's an yeah. amazing experience. Yeah, I mean, the biggest, basically, the only thing bigger is like the Rolling Stones or something. But, um, yeah, it was really, really an amazing experience. And, um, you know, uh, it was a definitely a quality experience with quality people, you know, so that was great. And uh, so was there any of the, like, bigger tours that were, like, kind of a like a, a bummer as far as, like, you know, maybe you weren't treated in a professional <clears throat> manner or anything along those lines or were mostly everything pretty good? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always down to the people you work with. I mean, like, what you do, what anybody does, you know. I mean, it's a... You're, you know, people forget that it is a work environment. Right. You are doing the work, so, even if it seems like, you know, the, the audience is there for fun. Don't get me wrong, but it is, it is yes, work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, everybody brings their own experience and their own attitude, attitudes towards whatever is going on, you know, and, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for, for being such a cool job, it's kind of surprising how many people don't actually even like the job. You know, and I'm talking about the job as like right. anything under the umbrella of putting on giant shows like that, you know? So, um, We're, yeah, you kind of wonder like, hey, don't you like music? It seems like you should like music. <laughs> well, if you, if you, yeah, if you like music, why don't you rock and roll tours and reconsider, you know, your position? <laughs> you know, because if yeah. you really like it, you're going to come out of it liking it more. Yep. And if you've got a little gram of, I'm not sure about that, you're going to hate it and like get into sports or something. You know? <laughs> Suddenly you're yeah. really into uh, artisanal alpaca <laughs> sweaters or something along those lines. Something, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, there was also, uh, you know, Rush, right? That that was another big show. I mean, and you would like to think that... It was a big show. ...that uh, they, their fans might be more, might be receptive to weirder oh. music. Uh, do you feel well, like yeah, I mean, Rush, you know, yeah, and they're all older, so they're not going to throw stuff at you, you know. So, the, you know, the Rush crowd was just kind of, uh, okay, whatever, this is interesting. But there would always be uh, Melvin's fans that would go to those big shows, you know, because they would just be, this is great, I get to go hear, you know, my favorite, favorite alt band play over a gigantic PA. You know, so at, I mean, at the football stadium or wherever, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Not, so, not designed for live music at all, but is this crazy experience? <laughs> yeah, so the people who were who were not having a good time just sit out in the lobby drinking buckets of coke, and the ones who were really psyched were really psyched. You know, um, and there's only a couple of times where crowds got you know really violent to the point where you just went, "Wow, this is." You know, this is a violent crowd, you know. So, um, but I think things have calmed down a lot now. And, you know, post 9-11, everything is so security conscious and kind sure. of fascist in a way. I mean, they have look metal at, detectors outside shows and it's just, you know. Look at some stuff like the, the Bataclan and um, with Eagles of Death Metal and the, you know, the fact that literally a terrorist yeah. attack on a rock show you know that's well if you call your if you're you know if you subscribe to a genre called death metal you know it's in very it's it's invariable that at some point death will present itself in your life 
which, which, which is funny because they're the least death metal band in the world, and it's meant to be ironic. But that's neither, I mean, that's neither here nor there. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's I don't know where it is. You're right; it's neither here nor there. So the the and the last record uh, of your time with the Melvins before you started you, you was Stag before you started recording uh, your record. Or was that um, was that around the same time? Uh, no, I said no. It was um, silent I started recording my record. Yeah, I started recording the silent treatment like in April of uh, '98. Okay, I know you said there was a gap between yeah. it came out and I, I, you know you never know with major labels back then. Like you know, you sit around waiting for glaciers to move. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Well, time. that didn't. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, Stag came out, and then and then the you know Atlantic didn't pick up the option, and so we made Honky with Amrap. Right with Tom, you know, so, Tom yeah, yeah. Sure. So, yeah. So as far as I was concerned, we were probably just gonna, you know, go make records with him forever or some other indie or whatever. I mean, there, there were, I think there was a couple of majors that were kind of making overtones, like offering money to make demos or something, you know. Uh, yeah. And um, I had a conversation with Buzz about just taking the money, and then we could make, we could, we could. We'll give them a couple of songs, and then with the money they give us, we'll just record an entire record make for record, ourselves. Make a record and give them the quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like here's three songs or here's two songs, you know, and then we could because I, you know, because I mean, I, I knew how to make a record really cheap. Yeah, by I that mean, point. if you're not bad about did. a grift, really, and I guess actually it's not even a grift; yeah. like it would be a this usage, different use of resources than uh, what most bands would do. Sure. Well, I mean, it was just it was just being pragmatic at the time, you know, and and Buzz took a fair amount of offense to me even suggesting that we should take money from anybody, mm. you know. I mean, I guess he had more money than me, but uh, you know, I was very much like, yeah, this is like somebody offers you money, you know, make a record and, and give them two songs and just you know be on your way, you know. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, he didn't want to do that, and you know that our discussions didn't didn't continue much after that point. Um, but anyway, we did honky. I'm not sure if we did a tour for. I can't remember if we did a tour for it or not. I don't think we did for honky. I wasn't on the honky tour, um, and so I was. I was. It was. Yeah, it was like April of of '98. Um, when I started, when I started and finished doing the silent treatment, and then it wasn't until 2001. God, is that three years? Yeah. Maybe it was 2000. I'm not really sure. I know for sure that I looked for two years, and then it also involved me moving back to the to the U.S. from the U.K. and uh, um, so I had to kind of wipe the slate clean and start from zero is kind of difficult to do but that's what i did yeah and that's got to be that's got to be an interesting process uh on a number of levels not the least of which is just being psychologically prepared for it right i mean that's that's a night and day uh almost and yeah well i mean you know i had to get back in the in the job market and do all that kind of stuff and um you know it uh was um sobering and not very not very enjoyable you know i had to basically just figure out what i was just continue on with music and how i was going to do that and i basically have operated with 
the same way ever since. It's always always kind of a hustle for me to try and figure out how to get stuff done, and um, that's not any different today. Really, right, I mean, yeah, it's going to say it's changing absolutely. Slightly, <laughs> very slightly different, just because I have all this time in there now, so people can go, "Wow, you've really done stuff," or you know, I can get with a label and like season of mist, and they're like, "Wow, your your catalog's great," and you know, this is super cool. Let's let's do stuff, and so, um. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any way to explain anything other than I just have to keep hustling, you know. Well, but it, it, I mean, it, the work ethic sort of speaks for itself as well because you've you've kept at it. Uh, you know, I realize we actually haven't talked at all about the Bluebird, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to discuss that with you because there is sort of um, it, it's it's almost kind of a tense record <laughs> at times, right? <laughs> But in a, in a good way, like there's, there's, uh, but again, the balance is that, you know, some predominantly instrumental, there's a, what, three, four, there's, there's some with vocals. Uh, so talk to me about making that record. Like what, what kind of headspace were you at with that? Um, where, where did that come from? Was that specifically written to be a record? Was it just from this pool of songs that you, that, that you had already? Like where did that, uh, how did that come to pass? Uh, well, it was just, yeah, I mean, I always have probably three times more material than I need to uh, record a record. I'm almost kind of obsessive about having way more than I need, and then I just throw stuff out or whatever, but a lot of it gets recorded fully. But as I started to uh, kind of take a look at uh, the material that I had, um it seemed to sort of be leaning in a certain direction and just stuff that I was reading about the nature of happiness and, yeah. um, you know, the, uh, how it's been represented in a lot of, a lot of media and a lot of, uh, uh, culture, uh, by a bluebird. And this is almost kind of a dead thing now. I mean, people barely, think about the bluebird of happiness. You know? Right, right, but that was, but, uh, was a huge thing for a long <clears throat> time, though. I mean, that was, yeah. Like you, oh, yeah. You, is what you thought of as the second thing after you thought of the bluebirds, bluebird of happiness. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, this is kind of a towering sort of cultural thing that's kind of buried in a way. Yeah. And um, it was really interesting to start investigating that and where it came from, and it turned out that I was hearing uh, you know, bluebirds kept getting referenced and stuff that I was listening to, and I was going, well, that's really weird. And uh, I was listening to really, you know, kind of uh, um, highly eclectic stuff. I mean, I was listening to Bob Dylan and Hal mm. Jolson and, and um, you know, Phil Spector, and the bluebird kept popping out. And I kept going, well, this is really ridiculous, you know. And then I started seeing bluebirds, and then I found a bluebird feather. <laughs> Things just kind of uh, kept accelerating <laughs> there. And then um, something that I didn't know about was uh, um, Lori Black. Uh, Lori Black's mom was Shirley Temple Black. And um, so she had actually made a movie called The Bluebird in oh. like 19... 19- Oh wow! Okay, and so so I was really good friends with the whole family for like ten years, um, but that was kind of the final seal on the thing. I just went, oh okay, well now this is really personal, 
you know, because a person I know made a movie called The Bluebird. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's kind of like <laughs> so, the embers of the sky, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it all just kind of, you know, fell into place and was highly uh, synchronistic and just felt like the right thing to do, and I think it hangs together really well. I mean, granted, it's not a very... Uh, black metal situation no you know, no but, uh, yeah it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not a black metal situation right so, i mean uh, there's like for instance like a what is it somnambulus is sort of um almost has like a morricone sort of vibe to it with like the crazy synthesized strings like it'd be on um not like john carpenter but like 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 a sci-fi soundtrack almost sure, kind of situation yeah. right yeah like uh, uh what's his name uh bottle yeah, Angelo Badalamenti. I okay. could not think of that guy's name at all. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, more more kind of like that than more Coney, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because. that you've got like you know stuff like that in there, and um, you know, you also have stuff that's more you know rock like, right, and like a little more more straightforward. Um. It, so it, it's it, it's it's a record that I think it rewards multiple listens and it rewards those looking for nuance, but you know that can be a hard thing to try to get to people when you're not already a known commodity that has like that trust relationship necessarily with a with with a large fan base. Like like it's easy for a Radiohead to to change things up because people are going to be there and call it genius pretty much no matter what it is, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> not again not to diss on radiohead that's why i got i got no particular beef with radiohead but it's 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 a different thing when you're coming from a place of you know trying to make this art and like having this, these ideas and, and having these songs and putting them together and you know into basically a cold and indifferent world a lot of times well it's it's incredibly challenging and i mean one of the um I mean, it's the, it's the, you know, the Zen Cohen, if the tree falls in the forest, you know, nobody hears it, does it make a noise, you know, or the sound of a man clapping or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, yeah, if you have, you know, if you have a vast audience, then that vast audience hangs on whatever you do, or at least a portion of it does. Um, you know, so there's not... It, all that kind of stuff is operating on a vastly different level than it is, you know. Yeah. And I've had to, um, even, I mean, even the the time spent at Atlantic with the Melvins, I mean, it seems like this huge kind of incredible accomplishment. And it is really, because, I mean, that's sort of what everybody dreams of. Um, you know, as a young musician, you want to, I don't know if it's sane necessarily, but you, you don't want to be able to have have to work for a living and you want <laughs> right. to be able to you <laughs> want to be able to make them <laughs> but it's yes, yes. You're not but I mean you want to be able to <laughs> you, know, you want to be able to make a living from your art effectively right. and so uh, you know yes like you mentioned some of the big bands that, that Melvin's played with in the past but the reality is is the closer you think you're getting to that when you're when you go on a stage before a band like that you realize that that they really are like unicorns, you yeah, know, it's, those it's, types of bands, and that you might as well be playing outside the arena on the sidewalk, <laughs> you know. By the consensus. Because <laughs> all, all it is is that you're 300 yards closer 
Right. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean that you that you're somehow more significant or you have even a chance of getting, you know, one tenth or a hundredth of the success that they've had. So, um, you know, even the the further you get, further you go within all of this, or the further one goes, I think it's really important to uh, manage your expectations. And so that's a big thing that I'm going through at this point right now is managing my expectations given uh, the amount of time that I've spent doing this and what, what I can expect from music in the, in the future. Um, and, you know, I'm discovering that music doesn't owe me anything. I mean, right. it never has. And the only music, because music is an abstract thing. So, um, you know, trying to get back to the point where the music is the main thing. Instead of the trappings around it, around the yeah, music. Is my, is, is my challenge right now is to kind of strip away whatever I can that's superfluous and, and try and make the music um, the reason, you know, and the most important, which, which it is. I mean, music is always the reason why I making it i can't i can't help but make it but um it's easy to get lost in in the expectation of what you should be getting what you feel like you deserve and all those sorts of things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um that's a difficult path to to navigate as you get older and you look at the reality of how much time you might have left to do things and uh there's a financial aspect to it too because i mean this is you know, to do it on any other level other than a level that's where you're, you know, you're viable as a commodity, um, you know, it's, it makes it increasingly difficult to uh, try and even just do it, to try and go out on a tour or something, you know, so. Well, because it's an, it's an investment, you know, of money, it's an investment of time, it's an investment of engagement, like, there, again, it's very... Because and, and I think you you hit on some important points here, and I want to try to to build on some of those. But I feel like it's something where a lot of people kind of downplay the psychological aspect of it. You know, you have to get into a headspace that, like, all right, so you're you know, suiting up, <laughs> we're gonna go do this. And and again, it may not it may not nec- not only may it not work out the way that you want it to, it may not work out at all. Maybe it'll catch fire. Maybe it'll turn into something cool, but otherwise, you know, as long as you have, if you're doing it, you have the next thing down the line to work on. You don't have to invest too much effort into, you know, necessarily uh, putting your self-worth on the line as an artist because it, it, it didn't necessarily connect with the right people, especially in this, the, the constant din of chaos that is modern music making. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just not... You know, the, the the digital world has created, uh, you know, a lot of great things and a lot of terrible things, too. You know, yeah. there's a there's an expectation amongst people who are creating music now that are not, who are not particularly talented and haven't really done the work, but, um, you know, they feel like you should be able to just push buttons and generate songs, and those songs should be hits, and... Everybody should pay attention, and everybody has different different skill sets, you know, and uh, that they excel at. 
and now we're just in an age where the where the image and the soundbite and the kind of instance of something occurring is like the flashpoint, and that's the most important thing, you know. And uh, that's there are people who are really talented in you know making the biggest noise in the room or on the screen, yeah. you know. And and there's also people who know how to use the digital environment to their advantage to generate that. But, you know, it doesn't feel very organic to me. I mean, it's it's a completely different time. And like I mentioned before, nobody really knows what the end result of this is going to be. Oh, and anyone that but, says that I they mean, do doesn't, you know, it's totally full of it. Like, there's, there's, no, way to, there's no way to know <laughs> at all. Sure, but it, yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a completely different time also, you know. I mean, it's kind of safe to say that the, sort of golden age of recorded music is done, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, there's no, you know, I think just because of the lack of uh, concentration, you know, and the amount of distraction that there is, it precludes, um, you know, getting into all the piano sonatas of Schubert or something. Yeah. People just don't have the attention span or the interest. And, you know, it's consigned to the past in a way even though when you listen to it, it's incredibly fresh and amazing sounding. Um, you know, and it comes from a time of silence. And I think the music that we listen to now comes from a time of incredible noise and mm. saturation. Mm, yeah. And that's that's why it sounds like the way it does. I mean, harmony is basically a lost art at this point. You know, if you think of like 60s and 70s pop music, yeah. the, it's exceedingly you know, the stuff in the charts, the harmony in it is amazing, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, I'm a All these people went to school <laughs> and they studied harmony and stuff, you know, and figured it out. But now it's just kind of, there's a beat and there's a guy mumbling something over the top, you know. <laughs> or there might be some amazing yeah. female singer who, who just can't hit a note, has to sing like 400 of them. So it's all very kind of stripped down and about, you know, it's designed for a reaction as opposed to, uh, you know, to convey something emotional, maybe. I mean, that's mm. sort of what I get from, like, chart music now, you know, but it sounds yeah. really sort of vapid and unmusical to me, but maybe that's, you know, I am old, but, uh, I mean, Stockhausen sounds more musical to me than, <laughs> you know, like half the crap on the radio, well, whatever radio is. And know. there is sort of a melding of the, of the visual as well, and not necessarily in the classic album 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 cover way, but just again harkening back to the, you know, it being this universal 360 brand of which music is just a piece of it for these pop stars, and you know, there's shoe lines to sell, and there's <laughs> you know partnerships yeah, with this company, platform. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cross-platform promotion, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and I think it all comes down to, you know, now that, now it seems like everybody wants to be an individual brand, you know, like, that's the whole thing, is, like, branding your existence into something, and in the past, I think the difference between now and the past is in the past, you became a brand as a side effect. But it know? wasn't the goal, was, right, yeah, yeah. No. You were just, it was a side effect of how badass you were, you know. I mean, nobody had a label, sat down and went, okay, I've got an idea for an artist called Billy Holiday. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so this one ticks all the boxes. Go get her, you know. It's like, no, 
that's not, you know, and it's hard to imagine all these super iconic figures of the music of the 20th century being brand new at one time and unknown, yeah. you know, but that's the way it was. And I mean, you know, there'll, there'll be more good music, hopefully, but I mean, the 20th century, you know, the first hundred years of recorded music um, produced just staggering amounts of amazing material, you know, <laughs> and it's almost like a, like a millstone. Yeah. For anybody that's seriously listening to music now, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't even fathom what it would be like to, to be starting out on tenor saxophone, you know, as a teen, and then basically just running all the amazing sax players, tenor sax players on Spotify. I mean, you'd want to quit, you know? Well, yeah, it, 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 totally because yeah. it's so be inspired. Yeah, it's, it's gonna go exactly. It's gonna go one way or the other. You're gonna look at the what did they say? Like if the one man looks at the vast cosmos of the universe and sees only uh, no reason for existing at all, and another man sees the vast expanse of the universe and sees all the reasons for existing in the world. I suppose it depends on your outlook. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean. You know, but I think there will, there will you know, it's, I wish I would have had something like that as a teenager like Spotify to be able to just listen in with oh, yeah, it's, YouTube. It's great. YouTube's incredible. I mean, you can become the most amazing guitar player in the world if you just watch YouTube two hours a day. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's crazy that all these things that are that are just, you know, whatever, that's just the way it is. You know, oh, what's what band is this? Oh, click, click, click. Oh, now I've heard everything that they have. Uh created yeah. the history of mankind of you know all the b-sides i've absorbed all of it and now it's on to the next thing and okay wow that yeah. took me three years to track down like you know just the major records <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well i think that's that's like part of the distraction thing i was saying talking about you know how people can't seem to focus on things you know and, and it being uh, a thing to click on too and that's and that's uh, sorry i don't want to drill your thought there but please continue what was the, what were the that I sidetracked there because I, I wanted to talk about your album art because I think that uh, there's yeah. there's uh, it's very <laughs> it's very cool it's very iconic like I, I think that oh well thanks like Bluebird I think kind of almost looks like um, like to me the styles like like those old books that they would have in like the sixties or something along sure. those lines right and like yeah. it's got such a cool like oh neat like and I don't think you have to have that memory. Or like know what those things are to base off. Just be like, oh, that's really cool art. And then like for instance on the the uh, bell ringer one, it's it's like it's such a it's such graphic design in the way that graphic design is now, but in the coolest way because it just makes use of the space to uh, you know it, it 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 just it's it's arresting to the eye, and it's definitely. Like you take note of it. Like if it's just a thing you're scrolling past very quickly, it's something you would take note of. Uh, so yeah, I, sure. Yeah. So, so does that you know do these ideas come after the recording's done? Do you have like these ideas beforehand? Like how does the how's the process for the artwork out melded with the rest of the uh, with the music? Well, usually, I mean, it'll um, once I have an album title, then I'll throw it at my wife Jennifer, and she's a, a professional graphic designer, so. We operate really on a on a super intuitive level. We basically just go, how does this feel? How does that feel? She's got her own sort of 
uh, torturous process to go through to find her way to something, and mm-hmm. I just kind of leave her to it. I never have any... Uh, the only time I start to have suggestions for her is basically once she comes up with concepts related to, um, you know, what the album title is. Um, but the albums are not necessarily conceptual albums and concept albums. Mm-hmm. They just kind of fall under, um, you know, it's when you go looking for a name for something, if you're writing an article or you're trying to write a byline or anything that you're doing, uh, a different part of your brain start, starts operating and you start thinking intuitively and, you know, and that's the place, that's the place that I want to go to for this type of stuff. And uh, I trust her absolutely. She's got um, a hell of an eye. Goes, I mean, she's incredibly talented. I've, I've, you know. Yeah, it's super cool. And I mean, like for the bell ringer thing, I really wanted the only sort of note that I had was I wanted to kind of make something that was a little evocative of kind of hypnosis album covers. Oh, sure. You know, okay. You know, the, yeah. you know, that company. So it's all yeah. that Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin stuff and some, you know, Genesis stuff, but how it's very kind of simple and yeah. geometric and kind it's of not busy at all. Yeah. It, it almost yeah. And it's kind of elusive and evocative too. Like it's kind of, hitting parts of your brain that you don't access too much. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm all about the, the shadow self and the unconscious and, and everything. And so uh, that's the way we operate as far as the art's concerned, you know, is just trying to hit things that are, um, I don't know if nostalgic is the right word, but um, sort of evocative on a kind of emotional level, right? you know. And, I mean, the Bluebird was kind of an easy, you know, I mean, that's, an, you know, you say Bluebird to somebody and everybody gets a different image in their head. But uh, that one was a little was a little drawn out and it took some doing. There's a lot of hidden stuff in there and um, uh, meaningful things. But in the end, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's really nice. We, we're super happy with that one. That's, I mean, it's pretty unique and it's you know it's it's a very interesting album cover and you know ideally again if you're dealing with stuff in the digital world it does serve the purpose of making you like stop and kind of go hey whoa what's that and you know some sometimes that's all you need sometimes you need a little more but uh yeah it, it's 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 very beautiful artwork and it's but it's also yeah, it kind of, oh go ahead we're kind of evocative of older older literature too because i'm somewhat yes. of a book collector so those super decorative books of the yeah. 19th century where they'd have all the embossing and stuff that's really that's kind a, of a touchstone for that that's know? the first thing i thought of when i when i saw it is that like it definitely had that feel of just like yeah looking like an old book and the only thing i can think of that's even in recent years that uh like even comes close as far as using that kind of uh, that kind of style necessarily is, you know, there's Chris Ware, that artist, Chris Ware, he does that Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth. Um, he has a few other books as well, but he's definitely like a fan of that style of, uh, you know, almost like the, <laughs> the golden age of publishing <laughs> sort of. If sure, you will, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. When they would make those amazing limited edition, versions of things you know and uh i even got a version of the uh 
I think it's about a hundred years old. This book I got, but but a uh, an edition of the Bluebird by uh, Morris Maeterlinck, mm. who's actually it was originally a play, and so I think he was Belgian maybe, but he also wrote Poetics and Melisandre. I think the maybe the uh, libretto for the WC opera, but anyway, he. Um, <laughs> there was a version of the Bluebird that came out like a hundred years ago, and so I got a copy of that book, and it was very, you know, it had a super nice panel on the front and embossed gold lettering. So that was kind of a departure point for that, right? You know? And um, yeah, it worked out good. The better, the bigger the image, the better it is too. Like it looks looks great on an album sized. Uh, yeah, Format. yeah. Where you can like really like check out all the detail, which so and that's interesting uh, too because as much as you know, yeah, everything is just wild chaos now and uh, things on a screen and uh, anarchy all the time, always. But like the re-rising <laughs> of uh, the album as like a archival art form as a object at a merch table, for instance, that's. Yeah, that's a nice thing, right? That's something that I certainly I know I didn't really yeah. expect it, frankly. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, it's like buying a, you know, it's like buying a souvenir when you get off Splash Mountain. You know? <laughs> like here's your right, totally. You know, here's here's a souvenir of your experience. You know, so and and it has music in it also to listen to, which is good. But yeah, I mean, they're kind of you know merchandise is now. Um, you know, if you're touring, that's where you make up the money that you're losing by touring. Right. You know, I mean, you know, successful bands accepted, of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something. Yeah, it's <sighs> stuff's crazy, man. I guess that's that's a uh, that's the summation of that argument is that it's you know it it really doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason to any of it. But it, you know, I I certainly appreciate the thoughtfulness that you put into not just the crafting of the music, but you know, all the rest of the package and everything else that goes with it. And I think there's certainly other people that appreciate that as well, that are going to go beyond it. Just being like a thing that I click on and instantly forget about the second it's over. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was talking about as far as, uh, expectation or whatever. If you just concentrate on the task at hand, which is the creating of whatever you're doing, um, you know, because at that point you're making it for yourself in the beginning. You make records for yourself. You don't make them for an audience. Right. You know? Yeah. The, the audience is kind of abstract. And for me, it's it's kind of alchemical because it's it's always been about the making of the thing. And so there needs to be lots of preparation. It's very much kind of like a lab experiment for me. Sure. And, um, you know, just because of the... Uh, Economic purposes, I've always had to really, really plan everything out um, as far as how much studio time I'm going to have and I'm going to hire to play on it or hire to engineer it or mix it. So, and Do you feel um, that informs the creative process based on just resource availability and things like along those yeah, lines? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of wiggle room for stuff to go in any particular direction. Um, but mainly, you know, the important thing is is to just be with the thing you're trying to create and concentrate on that. And usually, uh, you know, it'll turn out pretty good. It's it's only when you start to 
get into the area of preconceptions and expectations that the whole thing is going to start to wobble sideways. <laughs> right. <for me. laughs> right. Anyway, you know, I mean, I'm the, I'm the only one in the room making the thing, so, you know, if it's terrible, it's my fault. You know, if it's amazing, it's also, you know, because of me. So uh, it's an interesting process. Well, I, and not, not to jump around too much, and I forgot to, to talk about it when you mentioned it earlier, but uh, when you mentioned Greg Anderson, it that kind of tripped a memory wire that you did some stuff with uh, with Sun uh, some time back, right? Uh, you did a God, that was like a while ago. Um, what was what was that like? Because that's a very different kind of. I almost feels like what Sun does is almost like closer to like uh, compositional <laughs> kind of stuff than than necessarily like the metal band <laughs> or whatever along those lines. Uh, so how do you how do you approach yeah, uh, coming into like an existing world like that and like what you do with uh, what Greg and company do? Uh, well, I mean they're they're real friends of mine. I mean Greg had a hardcore band called False Liberty, and Clown Alley actually played a show with them in oh, no '87 or something. Yeah, so we go back really far. Um, but as far as playing with them, yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, Sun World is kind of like a sealed world a little bit. Yeah. I mean, people come and go in it. And um, I think it was maybe, gosh, it was like 06 or something. I did some, uh, did a European tour with them with Earth and then did some playing in the U.S. with Celtic Frost and Boris and, you know, basically probably on and off at about a year's worth of work with them. No no recording or anything, but um, they have charts and, uh, you know, it's very kind of elastic and, and spontaneous and more like performance art than anything. But the sound of it is uh, very specific to them. I mean, nothing, yeah. nothing sounds like them. They sound like a blast furnace, basically. Right, right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So... Do, do they, it's one specific, one specific thing, you know, is what it is. Do, do they and, issue you uh, a robe when you uh, get, <laughs> come on the tour? Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> of course, awesome. yeah. I got a robe and everything. And, um, yeah, they were just here, and uh, um, I went to see them, and that, that's super cool and everything. Um, and they just have a really unique thing going on because you can only experience that at one of their gigs. It just does not translate in any way, shape, or form to anything, any kind of reproductive... I mean, it would have to be like an IMAX movie. Right. You you wouldn't be able to get the same experiential uh, treatment from that. Well, and and there's something to be said for that, right? Especially in this world where everything's increasingly been just reduced to being postage stamp size things that you push the button on. It's like, oh no, that's a thing you have to see. Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, they've had, you know, I think they've almost been together 20 years at this point also. So it's been a a glacial type of uh, growth that's happened, you know, but I think people are kind of you know, when they can't describe exactly what draws them to it or why they think it's any number of ways, I think at the bottom of that is a experiential reason, you know, which is that it's the only place that you can go yeah, do that. You can't stream that. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like Space Mountain, you know. That's the only place you can exactly. have that experience. 
You, you could try to recreate Spaceman in your living room, and I'm sure it'd be adorable, but it's not going to be the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there might be some kind of VR way to do a sun thing also, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right, the, the low-budget yeah. sun. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a fun thing to do, and, you know, to have a, an interesting sort of ethos at work, and Greg and Steve are too... Very different guys, but, you know, what they do together makes this super cool thing. And they have kind of the collaborative thing going on, too, you know, where people come and go according to if they can do the gig or not or if they're cool to hang out with is kind of the main thing. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, When when you saw him recently, was Tim Midget playing with them? Yeah, Tim was with them. Tim and uh, Bill Herzog and... Steve Moore, do you know those guys? Yeah, Tim's been uh, been on the show a few times, and um, yeah, he's a great dude. I mean, I, I love. I've got a lot of time for all all of his bands, and it was something that was like pleasantly surprising because uh, he's an amazing player. When uh, when they had him collaborate at first on the record, and then go out on tour with him, I was like, oh, that's very yeah. very cool and kind of fascinating because I could totally see him pulling that off, but. I would like to see yeah. him pull that off because I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> so, well, he's a super nice guy, and I, I thought maybe I'd met him at some point before, but I hadn't. But yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. Yeah, very very um, very amazing discography, really centered and with a guy. And uh, you know, it's like I, I got a lot of time for for Tim Majid, and it's cool to see him. You know, playing these like. <laughs> You know, glacier-like compositions and, and and owning it because of course you can. That's that's fantastic. So yeah, it's a it's it's a fun gig if you can do it. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> nice work if you can get it. Right. Uh, yeah. So the so again we coming back to earlier on we were talking about Bell Ringer and that although I think it's a fantastic band name, uh, don't ever search for it. And you, you're it's you're, it's kind of being rebranded as everything is under just the Mark Dutram banner now, right? And yeah, it's not, it's not even rebranding; it's just you know, it just will continue on basically. I mean, because all the records are under my name anyway, so um, you know, there's not a lot that has to be done really. So, and that's something where uh, you know, there's I know there's a markdutram.bandcamp.com. Uh, there's the the label website as well. Well, there's also a markdutram.com too. Like you have like a bunch of stuff just on the regular old website that you know human beings used to yeah, have. The, before. Yeah, the web, the well, I keep the website in case anybody wants to get in contact directly, which some people still do. And then you know, not through social media. I don't really right. do anything through there, but. Um, and, uh, um, and I keep that up to date just because that's kind of the official sort of stuff as opposed to all the other crap that's out there. So anybody who wants a bio, they can go there, and that's actually what happened. Instead you know? of uh, and then, making up your own thing or just stealing some crap yeah, out of it. Yeah, just, you know, con- conjecture or whatever. Oh, you know, that's sure. My, yeah, yeah. That's my version of my life, so... You know, because I got in a fight with Wikipedia over my life, and it was stupid. So, Lord. <laughs> um, so anyway, that just makes it easy, and then I just post, you know, the latest stuff that I'm doing. It's just a depository for anybody who's 
really, you know, is interested in kind of the, the train spotting level of, of things and all the important interviews get posted there and stuff. So it's more, more depository for anything. And somebody like yourself who wants to go in depth. Check things you know. out. And then there's also uh, the label's got a website. Um, I think it's got like dashes. It's like season dash of mist. Uh, dot com or something along those lines, right? It's a, it's yeah. Yes, yeah, it's like a micro site, I think. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of bands with logos that are hard to read on it. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> going to be mine in about a month. <laughs> yeah, yours is legible at least. So you got, you got go yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got to fix that. You know, yeah, you need to watch the text message right now. <laughs> You'll definitely move a few more units if you uh, decrease the legibility of that of that logo. Yeah, my name has to look like a meteor cluster, <laughs> right? You know, exactly. At a distance of like five parsecs. You know? <laughs> uh, awesome. And is there any other places that, uh, that that people should be looking for all things Mark Dutrum? Uh, well, I've got an Instagram page, Mark Dutrum Official, and you can go there and see. Ah, beautiful. Uh, pictures of bacon and, you know, a spider and stuff like that. Typical Instagram uh, stays, yes. <laughs> yeah, standard, standard thing. Um, there was a Bellringer IG that's going to go away. Oh, YouTube channel. Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, I have a YouTube channel, Mark Dutrum, and that's got my... The Riff uh, stuff. The Riff stuff. That's got the Riffology series. It's got 23 shorts I made with... My wife and she did animation or, or editing, and I just made a guitar riff to go with it. Nice. And there's also um, all the videos for Gullinger tracks and for tracks from my solo records that my wife has also made. They're super good. Those are on there. And I've also started putting up some old Melvin's gigs on there. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Which people, you know, I just basically had these VHS tapes for 25 years or whatever. I've never had them transferred. And so I've started to get some transferred and uh, uh, put some up on the, there's a, there's a Melvin's playlist on my YouTube page. And it's all filled with uh, shows that people have taped over the years. Wow. So there's quite a few of them. That's cool. Well, Sounds to me like you've established quite the personal brand on the internet. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I've got the Mark Dutrum thing cornered. Yeah. So. Mark, thanks so much for uh, taking time out to, to do the show. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, you, you are welcome. Uh, thanks for thinking and researching and asking good questions. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, be, we'll I'll, I'll keep all the links on uh, for the show so people can go find all the music, maybe like catch up on what they missed or listen in for the first time. Yeah. Is this archived? This it show? is. Yeah. It'll, the podcast will be up on, uh, on Monday. Okay. If you use links for material, use links from the, um, uh, season of mist, um, uh, page for my material, because that way it'll be good quality. Gotcha. Sounds good. Mark, so all the albums are up there. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Really, really, uh, really appreciate the time and talking to you. And uh, yeah, let's uh, see you down the road. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, brother.
Ah, there he goes. What a cool guy. It's Mark Dutram. So go to uh, go to all those places. Is this thing on? Find the things. Uh, he's got hell of a discography, man. Check it out. It's 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 worth looking into. It's if you go in with an open mind, you uh, just might be pleasantly surprised. Uh, so yeah, season dash of dash com, markdutrum.com, D E U T R O M. Uh, he's on Instagram. He's got a Facebook page. Preferred social media of choice. Are we going? Yeah, that's the thing. That's the stuff. That's the. <laughs> that's the stuff, everybody. Uh, good talk, man. I I, I really enjoyed uh, getting into it with him, and it's uh. Yeah, he's onto some cool stuff, so go take a look at it. I said my piece. I've said enough. All right, so this song is called End of Radio. It is the last song we play at the end of Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. Which you have been listening to. Let me thank you for that. RadioNeutron.com for the archives. Show airs live radio nope 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Signing off. Every Thursday. RadioNope.com. Live listeners, we've got Music On with Music Off coming up next. Anyone within the sound of my voice. If you feel so inclined, upgrade the show on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify, whatever. That's how people find it. 50,000 watts of power. I don't like it any more than you do, but ratings make the world go around. I want to ionize the air. I uh, got some cool stuff coming up. Stay tuned, as always. I'd like to thank Mr. Mark Gutram for spending his time with us. Sound into electricity. Listen to his stuff. All right. Can you hear me now? Out on Route 128, dark and low. Catch you later. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio! The last announcer plays the last record! The last what? Leaves the transmitter! Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? If there's no one there to receive It's the end of radio As we come to the close of our broadcast day Emergency! Hey, hey! This is a real goddamn emergency!